This is the City of God podcast, where Christ meets culture. Welcome to the City of God podcast. My name is Rob Pacienza, and on this podcast, we are weekly discussing today's biggest cultural issues all through the lens of God's infallible word. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host, John Rabe. John, great to see you today. Rob, it is a delight to be with you as always, and we've got uh, an important program today. This is, uh, we've done this a few times, but uh, not many times. This is actually going to be a part two uh, of a program that we already began a few weeks ago ago, uh, anybody, any Christian who is online at all, uh, especially on Twitter or some of the social media uh, outlets, reading blogs and so forth, will realize that the topic of quote unquote Christian nationalism has become a real uh, hot topic and there's quite a buzz and even a lot of disagreement uh, in the Christian world among brothers that you and I would would appreciate on many things uh, in disagreement with each other about this. But you and I sat down and talked with David Bybee and did a, a deep dive on this subject that was so excellent, we realized we couldn't fit it all into one podcast. So we're going to dip back in and, and get part two of it today, because this is a really vital discussion that we're having today. It really is. And, and David's done a lot of research and a lot of reading. If you watched the episode a few weeks ago, you could just see that uh, the ideas were flowing yeah. and it just really an engaging conversation in, 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 in regards to an important topic. I think Christian nationalism is something that is uh, greatly misunderstood. Mm-hmm. And I think what we want to do at our ministry and on this podcast in particular is uh, clarify what we mean by Christian nationalism? What does it mean to have a biblically faithful, Christ-honoring understanding of Christian nationalism and its relevance to the church in the 21st century? David is a good friend. He's on staff with us at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. He oversees our Christian education department. And so we we couldn't fit the entire conversation into one episode. So as you said, this is part two of the timely conversation regarding Christian nationalism. He's a, a fond of wisdom on this. It's a really engaging program. I I greatly enjoyed talking to him. And, um, you know, one of the things that we're proceeding uh, under the understanding of when we discuss it with him is that this term Christian nationalism needs to be defined, which we which we do. We also have to recognize that, yeah, there are legitimate questions that Christians can have about what role does biblical law play in governance? What part do Christians play in governance and so forth? But also recognizing that this is a term that's been hurled at us by the left to sort of put all Christians who are politically active under one umbrella and marginalize them. So we dig into all of Absolutely. that. Absolutely. And it's unfortunately used by many as a scare tactic. That's right. That's exactly. Don't you dare, as a Christian, delve into the realm of government and politics. Um, And so what does it mean to... Uh, have a healthy dose of patriotism, yeah. uh, even inside the church. Um, how, how does church and state intersect and uh, going all the way back to our founding as a nation and seeing the flourishing of our society over the last 250 years because of the grounding of the Judeo-Christian worldview that was the predominant worldview of our founders. So looking forward to part two. Amen. And uh, here we go with uh, David Bybee talking about Christian nationalism. A couple months ago, I heard a pastor in our denomination stand before his congregation and say, I'm going to just 
paraphrase him. Uh, maybe we will be better off as a nation if we go purely secular, if we reject God, if, if the culture rejects God's design for marriage and family, rejects God's design for gender and sexuality, rejects God's design for the state, maybe we'll be better off being a little bit more like China. So we'll actually learn what it means to suffer for the sake of Christ. And the whole congregation erupted in mm. applause. And and on the surface, you go, yeah, maybe we need to learn to suffer a little more. And maybe, you know, if our darkest days are ahead of us. But why, why is that so dangerous, especially in light of what you just said and in light of the conversation we just have to, to stand before your congregation and basically go, yeah, we're just going to take a laissez-faire approach and let bygones be bygones. Let the, let the secularists win. Uh, why is this so dangerous to stand before your congregation and say, hey, if we become like China, maybe we'll be better off in the, in the, in the end? You go for it. John. Well, <laughs> I, it's funny, Rob, because that's the thing that really lights my candle, so to speak. Um, there are lots of pastors that I have really admired, even who I've heard preach things like that. Oh, we have it too good in the West. And we all recognize the Bible does talk about the danger of riches. There's no yep. question about yeah. that. But we all, what we don't talk about enough is the danger of failing to be grateful for an incredible inheritance and enormous blessing that we're frittering away because of passivity, that we're frittering away because of this false dichotomy that says, uh, well, this is the, 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 the material world doesn't really matter as much as the, the spiritual world. And so we can, we can let this all sort of go to pot and it's even better for us as it does. Um, you know, even the early church, yeah, they suffered persecution and they suffered it gladly. That's different than, than passivity that says, please bring me suffering. Please come Come and destroy what what I have. That's that's an odd sort of masochistic view that unfortunately too many too many Christians have adopted. And and I think it's a failure, David. And you tell me because you you've you've explained it so well. But I really do think again it's a loss of that central storyline that that fails to recognize the dominion that God has given us. That we have been given a task here, and that uh, when we are faithful to that task, God blesses it. And he did bless it here for hundreds of years. And to just throw up our hands now and say, ah, well, forget about that. We're better off suffering is, is, is a failure to give proper gratitude and obedience to God. It's failure to be thankful to our parents uh, and our grandparents, uh, you know, who went before us and who did all this. So we're not honoring our mother and father. We start to break a lot of commandments when we just throw up our hands and say, oh, just bring on the suffering. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I recently saw a clip of a World War II veteran who was weeping over his friends who had died fighting as mm. they had, because today he's looking around at our country and saying, what did my friends all die for? Mm. Like, this is, we are not anywhere close to the kind of nation with justice that we fought specifically to preserve. So I do think in the first case, it is entirely inappropriate to abandon these issues supposedly out of a love for Jesus when God commands us to love our neighbors, yes. which means I have to be seriously concerned with what my government is doing to my neighbors. Um, we see throughout the entire Bible that when God raises 
raise up Christians normally in and through their suffering, it results in more harmony, more peace, more flourishing for the people in their city where they have authority, where that's, whether that's Joseph or Daniel. Like we are to pursue the good of our neighbor and of our nation. So I think this I love is, that. This is yeah, an important yeah, point, good. I think, also when we talk about this being an American thing or certainly what liberals will say that this is white Christian nationalism. Yeah. No, on no. the contrary, the church, which is of every tribe and tongue, has been sent throughout the world to Amen. every nation yeah. to teach them how to obey and embrace the Lord Jesus. So I want China to experience mm. an emergence of a Christian ethos that overturns That's the good. tyranny there. Amen. I want every nation in Africa to overthrow you know, whatever tyranny exists there. I think what it looks like in terms of how am I going to approach the political context of my day is inherently contextual. I only have influence in Florida and in the United States, but all Christians everywhere should hope that the Lord Jesus's truth and goodness as he defines it is seen in a society. How dare we suggest we should not want that? Amen. Yeah, I love that. Just in case our audience missed that, I think that's in such an important connection that you just made. The type of Christian nationalism we are talking about today and advancing and, and endorsing is directly connected to Jesus's second commandment. Yeah. To love our neighbor. That, that I think that is so important that we are pursuing shalom. We are pursuing flourishing for all people. And we believe that it is guided and empowered by our understanding of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I wonder, is it fair to say that those inside the church that reject Christian nationalism, particularly the type of Christian nationalism we're talking about on this show today, are they rejecting it because... They have truncated, the church as a whole has truncated uh, definitions like their understanding of Christianity and what it means to be a Christian. Or we, we have a truncated understanding of the gospel. It's uh, The gospel is just this message that gets us out of hell yeah. and gets us to heaven. Um, you've talked about and written on this idea of what's in a name. Kind of under, We need to have a better definition of what it means to be a Christian, a better definition of Christianity, and a better definition of the gospel. Uh, what does that mean, having a better definition of terms, and how does that apply to our conversation today? I think uh, this goes back to maybe what we had previously discussed. Um, when we think of the gospel, we only think about forgiveness, but Jesus identified the gospel as the gospel of the kingdom. He said, the kingdom of God is at hand, therefore repent and believe. Um, I think a lot of Christians think strangely enough, that the Old Testament was the time when God was dealing with issues like government and running a nation, mm -hmm. but that the New Testament is when everything has become spiritualized and God is no longer concerned with what's going on around here. I actually think that's right the opposite. Um, Paul says that the Old Covenant were the times of ignorance, but God now calls all men everywhere, including Caesar, to repent, to acknowledge who Jesus is, that the old covenant was the time when God was dealing with one nation, but now in Christ Jesus, 
all of the nations that were separated in Babel are being united into the church and conformed, I, I mean, ultimately to the image of Christ. Um, so in that sense, yeah, we need to we need to recognize that the gospel is much more expansive because the gospel is the means by which everything that was lost in the fall, every dimension of it yeah. is being not only restored, but glorified. Yeah. Jesus went town to town, not just telling people how to get to heaven. He went town to town preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Yes. It's yeah. all it's all kingdom language. And in the and Great Commission, he tells us not only to, to baptize all the nations, but to teach them all Everything. that he has commanded, yeah. all the nations, and and that that is significant. And then in Revelation, we see the nations laying their treasures at the feet of the king. The nations matter. So let's get practical for a few minutes. What does that mean? I'm so glad you brought up the Great Commission. What does it mean for the church to disciple the nations? What does that look like? What does that mean? Because we hear that we've Christians have heard that their whole you know Christian life. What does that mean to disciple the nations and to teach them to observe everything that Jesus has taught? I think it's twofold. I think uh, in the first case, we we have to actually preach the gospel. We need to see converts. We need to pursue that. Uh, parents need to take responsibility for educating their children. Uh, that also is not a task that's been given to the government. Um, it's our responsibility to raise our covenant children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord so that they would go out and be able to live wisely and faithfully um, within the world. Um, but I think sort of secondarily, other than just conversion and, and teaching within the church, I think that the church is exists in the prophetic role relative to the government. Uh, the prophets were raised up alongside the kings in Israel in order to, to speak the truth, uh, especially to kings that have gone wayward. And that is what we are called to do. We are to, to call out to the world um, to repent and to believe. Um, in terms of personal political activity, I think in the first case, get to know your neighbors. Um, like we actually need to be involved at a local level where we have real and genuine influence. Um, I think this is not going to uh, happen in 10 years. We, we aren't going to see victory immediately. We have to begin building for the future um, so that perhaps our great, great, great grandchildren may live within a culture that has largely embraced Christ or to some extent more has embraced Christ on account of what we begin to do and the seeds that we sow uh, today. But this has to be a bottom up movement. It can't be a top down coercive effort. I think it was uh, in the, the Beatles song, Revolution, John Lennon sings, uh, you know, if you go carrying pictures of Chairman Mao, you ain't going to make it with anybody anyhow. You know, you can if you talk about destruction, you can count me out. When we're talking about Christian nationalism, I think maybe some people think of, you know, Presbyterians dragging mm. Baptists into the public square and flogging them for their uh, supposedly erroneous views on, on baptism. Uh, if that's what it is, then yeah, of course, count me out. And I think most of us would probably say that. But if we're talking about 
exercising Christ's dominion. It, we're calling the nations to, to lordship under Christ. We're tell, telling America, you are under the, the lordship of Christ. You are responsible to him. And here's what he says. And we have an obligation as a nation to render him obedience. If that's what you mean by Christian nationalism, America, obey Christ, then Count me in. I'm a, I'm a Christian yeah. nationalist. And I think we have to be aware of the ramifications on both ends of the spectrum. Um, a rejection of Christian nationalism and a rejection of the church's influence on the state has certainly led to the rise of secularism. We're, we're seeing it in droves, seeing it in the mainstream media, seeing it in the government. Uh, we're seeing legislatures, uh, legislators uh, mock uh, Christianity and faith and God's design mm. for gender, family, uh, and and kind of our Christian life and and. Uh, life and worldview, but we're also seeing it in the church. And what I'm seeing is because we've rejected Christian nationalism and a rejection of Christianity influencing politics, something uh, I call Christless conservatism, mm. uh, where it's conservative ideology uh, that is not based or grounded in any type of uh, theology that recognizes Jesus Christ as Lord. Why is Christless conservatism just as dangerous as uh, the leftist secular propaganda? I think this is something uh, we have to be seriously concerned with. I think especially as we see individuals like Andrew Tate who are being lifted mm -hmm. up by conservative media personalities. On the one hand, there are things that Andrew Tate says, critiques that he has of feminism, various sure. aspects of culture that I would agree with. Yeah. Um, but this is a man who is fundamentally committed to an unbiblical worldview in all basic principles. Um, and again if if fear of the lord is beginning of the beginning of, of wisdom, wisdom is yeah. it is if it is the gospel of jesus which transforms a fallen person and makes them to be the kind of new creation that will bring flourishing will lead a, a good life in obedience to god um then m merely being conservative has no power whatsoever to get you there um maybe somewhat unrelated. There was a, a professor that I had who, um, it was a class on critical race theory. And interestingly enough, this man claimed to be a Christian, but he denied the resurrection of Jesus. Yikes. And what was sort of stunning to me was that the, the crescendo of the class was this notion that now, because of this message Jesus has given us, we now have to go out and we have to fight for justice in the world because that's the proclamation of, of the gospel. But he doesn't believe Jesus came back from the grave. Mm. And it was this moment where, man, no matter how passionate he may be, all power to actually affect the change that he hoped to see has been robbed entirely from him because the only power to transform no power. nations Amen. and thrones is through yeah. Jesus Christ. Yep. We cannot be secularly conservative, I, even if I, I, I want to go as far as saying, and, and I don't know if you all would agree with me. I, I think evangelicals that embrace a Christless conservatism are just as guilty as those advancing the 
woke movement in our nation. Well, and and potentially as dangerous as you alluded to before. I mean, the woke movement, <clears throat> excuse me, is on the ascendancy right now. So that's the trouble that we see. But but what was it that our founders recognized in the founding of this nation? That was a Christian view. They recognized we're all sinners, we're all fallen, and you know, sinners having men having power ought to be distrusted because they are sinners. Well, that's as true of the Christless conservative as of the Christless leftist. Yep. You give uh, a, a Christless conservative a bunch of power, eventually without Christ, human fallen nature is we want to start rounding people up. We want to start having tribunals and we want to start taking people out to the uh, either out to the hill of Golgotha or to the gas chamber. It ends up happening on all sides because human beings want to control each other. And so while I think that the the conservatives uh, have more things that are right than the left does, uh, at the end of the day, if you abstract it from Jesus Christ and and you have people who are experts exercising power, but that power is not subsumed under a risen Lord, then you are going to end up with a, it, it may look different, the victims will be different, but you're going to end up with the same sorts of sets of problems, which is one group of people lording it over another and, and you know, marching them off to camps or worse. I think the other thing is that the, what have the Christless conservatives conserved mm. at all? Right. I mean, you have uh, when Barack Obama was elected, he specifically was against gay marriage, at least outwardly. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Just very recently, you had a number of Republicans who were voting in support of codifying on a federal level right. protections for gay marriage. And so th- that says to me that that if your conservatism is entirely decoupled from the nature mm-hmm. of God, uh, the nature the of the gospel, of that, uh, that authority, yep. Yep. what constitutes a human person and yep. healthy human yep. relationships, um, you don't have the ability to stand against yeah. particular necessary uh, uh, lines to yeah. be drawn. It blows, um, with, blows because, with the cultural wind. Ex- because yeah. you absolutely have to blow with the cultural wind in order to se- continue to secure the power that you happen mm-hmm. to have achieved. And Christians in the 21st century forget, not only was the phrase, Jesus is Lord, the first creed of the early church, it was deeply political. Mm-hmm. There was one Lord, it was Caesar. Right. So when they were declaring in the first century that Jesus is Lord, It was not only their creed in private, it was their creed in public. It was deeply, uh, it was a deeply political statement. And what that tells us is the lordship of Jesus Christ from the beginning, not only informed their private Christian lives, but their public faith as well, their understanding of government and powers and political ideology. I think one of the issues that I think we are faced with today, and I think this is why this is going to continue to be an issue, uh, is I think that the COVID crisis, the the way that the government has re- uh, behaved in the last many years, the weaponization of the Department of Justice, um, you know, they, they're not going to go after people that firebomb pregnancy centers, but they're going to attempt to indict Catholic men right. who, who were yeah. praying outside of abortion clinics. Um, that I think that the church is is going through a process of realizing a lot of our pastors are actually hirelings. Mm-hmm. Um, and what does a hireling do? As soon as the wolves show up, the, the hireling wolf. runs. Yep. Yep. And so, you know, the the issue of, of lockdowns and the pandemic, I understand uh, 
objectively that it's difficult sometimes to discern what is the right way to go and that we have to think and and try and figure it out. There was a lot of confusion. Um, But what the church needs to recognize is that the government doesn't have the authority to tell the church of Jesus Christ that you cannot meet Mm -hmm. to worship the king who is above you. If Jesus is Lord, absolutely. Correct. And so I think that's that's the problem is that this this apolitical uh, Christianity is not Christianity. Right. Um, Jesus is Lord. And what that meant for the early Christians was that they were going to be die to, d- to die for that. Yep. Not right. because they worship Jesus. The Romans didn't care if they worship Jesus. The problem is that they said that Caesar is actually submissive yep. to Christ. Mm. Uh, it was a political claim. Similarly, I think what did when the Sanhedrin gathered together, why did they decide to kill Jesus? They said that we cannot allow him to go on like this because if we do, the Romans will come and they will take our place yep. and our nation. Yep. It was entirely political and- concerns. We have no mm. king but Caesar, they yes. said. If Jesus is not Lord, some other Lord is going to command your allegiance. It's not whether it's which. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and the amazing thing is we know how the story ends. I mean, Christianity goes from this obscure group of Galileans to the greatest movement the world has ever seen. Why? Because they declared Jesus Christ was Lord, Lord of all. And we need to recapture yet again uh, the church in the 21st century, a political theology that is uh, grounded and informed by the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Last question, and then we're going to wrap it up. In light of this conversation, for those saying uh, the the church doesn't belong in politics, and and specifically this, you can't legislate morality, what do we say to that? Uh, All legislation is by definition the legislation of morality. Um, That's what it is for. Uh, I think even Paul specifically says um, that the law exists for the ungodly, uh, for the wrongdoer, for the person who is criminal. Why? Because the law provides specific boundaries um, that govern human behavior by the same token. This is why the law cannot change a person's heart. I think MLK said uh, once that the law cannot make a man love me, but the law can prevent him from lynching me. And I think that's important too. Um, The law exists to govern human behavior in order to to lead them, hopefully, in the right direction. all law is legislated morality. And that's where I want to see Christians start to consciously think these things through and reject these sort of aphorisms that have been handed down to all of us. I mean, I grew up hearing that, and I think I believed it for a time because it's just what you heard. Oh, you can't legislate morality. You can't legislate morality. And then at a certain point, you realize, well, first of all, uh, morality actually is the only thing you can actually legislate. <laughs> all legislation is someone's morality. Again, it's not whether, but which. Not whether it will be a legislation of morality, but which morality is going to be legislated. But we, I think, too often just sort of take these cultural aphorisms as truth without stopping to analyze them and say, is does this meet the biblical test? Is this the truth of Christ, or is this just some sort of cultural detritus that I've picked up along the way? And so these these sort of aphorisms, again, oh, separation of church and state. Oh, the, you can't legislate uh, morality. Oh, the, 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 the church has nothing to do with politics. 
politics. Oh, the well, wait a second. You're 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 parroting things that you've been told, but they don't pass biblical scrutiny. They don't pass philosophical scrutiny. They don't even really pass the test of common sense if you stop for a few minutes and think about what it is that you're saying. So that's what I want to see is Christians stop just accepting the premises of an unbelieving culture and return to what Christ and his word actually tells well, us. And Absolutely. think about what you you are otherwise advocating for, right? Like there are Christians I know who on the one hand would think because of biblical principles, we decided to abolish slavery and that's a good thing. I would say, yeah, they just did a Christian nationalism, right? Yeah, that's right. Like <laughs> they, they were informed yep. by yeah. specific principles that God gave and they acted mm-hmm. to enforce that in society. Right. Now, yeah. when you get into issues like abortion or perhaps, um, you know, a, a friend of mine, Ask me why am I concerned about what parents are doing with transgender children? How does that relate to the gospel? Um, no, the because I love my neighbor, Amen. because God has told me true things about the nature of humanity. Mm-hmm. No, I have to pursue these specific things because it's wrong to allow right. We're my pursuing neighbor to shalom. be harmed. Yep. And yeah. I think that's so helpful, helping Christians today connect the dots to these historical precedents. Could you imagine what Western civilization would look like today if the slave trade and slavery was still legal? I mean, right. can you imagine those things if the church wouldn't have stepped out and practiced healthy, biblical, uh, God-honoring Christian nationalism. Perhaps our biggest trouble is that I don't think many Christians actually believe that the biblical principles would be good to be governed by, right? Like they don't- That's a big part of it. Right? This is going too far. I wouldn't want to live under that. There are some hard issues that are actually being displayed there. Is God's commands, are they really good or are they just- take them or leave them as we decide. Yeah. And and, and it's my hope, and I, I know you all share in this as well, uh, that we continue, as we, as we continue to pursue a biblically faithful uh, Christian nationalism that advances and honors the Lordship of Jesus Christ over all things, that in a, a world that is saying that Christian nationalism is the great enemy, uh, that we would help people see, no, actually, this type of Christian nationalism is the hope of the world. Yeah. Uh, this is actually the the leavening force, uh, the 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 hope that the world actually needs right now, uh, that Jesus Christ is as Lord is not only true, but it it is the hope that uh, a, a lost and dying world desperately needs right now. And I appreciate, you know, okay, if somebody wants to use another term, that's fine. But I also appreciate uh, somebody like Doug Wilson. You remember when uh, uh, Donald Trump was running for president, and then he, his presidency began, and the left began this term fake news. Oh, the president is pushing fake news. Well, what Trump actually did and his followers was took that phrase and flipped it around. It became a catchphrase that was a very effective one that was used against the people who originated it. Um, I like that somebody like Doug Wilson and others are taking the term Christian nationalism and saying, you know what, we're not going to back down from it. Instead, we're going to embrace it. We're going to carry it as a a flag and run with it. Um, You know, again, you have to define your terms, but we've done that here as we define Christian nationalism. Hey, call me a Christian nationalist. Absolutely. Yep. Guys, incredible conversation. We got to continue it uh, at a further date. Amen. 
I hope you enjoyed part two on Christian nationalism with David Bybee. If you enjoyed this episode, please, by all means, pass this along to family and friends as we together discover what it means to look through God's infallible word as we look at the world and the biggest issues facing our culture. Until next time, may God richly bless you. The City of God podcast is produced by Coral Ridge Ministries and made in partnership with the Institute for Faith and Culture. Visit us at cityofgodpodcast.com to access all of our previous episodes. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, or anywhere you get podcasts. A full video version of this podcast is available on YouTube. This is the City of God podcast, where Christ meets culture.